holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to you, Lord Christ. Christ. Morning, everyone. Again, welcome. It's a delight to have all of you here. Let me pray for us. Father, as always, we do pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you in these moments. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the third Sunday in the season of Epiphany, and we're in the midst of a sermon series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And by it, we're seeking to see him more clip clearly according to the emphases of this season. And last week we considered the influence that Jesus's followers are to have on the world, as well as the initial obstacle to that influence, which Jesus speaks of as anger. And today we come to two additional obstacles, those of lust and lying. And so if you're a first time visitor at All Saints this morning, you picked a really great Sunday to come and to check us out. I heard a pastor who once asked a small congregation to read Mark 17 in preparation for his sermon the next week, which is going to be online. And then they came back the next Sunday and he asked everyone to raise a hand if they had read Mark 17. And then he said, what? There's only 16 chapters in Mark. And then now for my sermon online. And I thought about it. And if I had been in the congregation, I probably would have raised my hand because people lie for different reasons. And many people like me lie to avoid disappointing people. Others of you don't lie for that. You lie for other reasons. My wife, for example, would never lie to avoid disappointing someone. She might lie to avoid someone bothering her, but we all lie for different reasons. And that means that regardless if you're new here this morning or you've been here for a long time, every, this, everything we're going to say is applicable because we all have something for which we would lie. And there's also someone after which we might lust. But what is the connection between the two? Because Jesus speaks about them back to back here in his sermon. So there must be a connection between the two. So what is it? And two points to answer that question. Number one, the definitions. And then secondly, the connections. First of all, the definitions. Jesus speaks here. He begins his, this passage by speaking about lust. And maybe you've heard the shallow statement, just because I'm on a diet, it doesn't mean that I can't look at the menu, some sort of chauvinistic statement like that. But according to Jesus, just looking and looking alone can eventually own and rule your life so much that your whole body, he says, is eventually thrown into hell. 
And this word here, translated as hell, helps us understand what he's talking about, what he means by lust, which he speaks of as adultery in the heart, but also what it does, because this word is actually a name, the name of an actual place just outside Jerusalem, this place called Gehenna. And maybe you've heard of this place before. It was their trash heap. It was the local city dump where they took all of their garbage to rot and to decay and to be burned. And that is an aspect of what hell is like. And so Gehenna became a common metaphor, a sort of nickname for hell. And Jesus is saying here, unless you deal with your sexual desire and respect its power and its goodness and the mystery of it, then it can and will spread to all aspects of your life. And it will spread decay and deterioration and even destruction in and around your life. And to the point where you begin to break down and burn, burn like the smoldering fire that never was extinguished there in Gehenna. And so that's what he means by that word. And having explained that, I have to also tell you two more definitions for you to fully understand what Jesus is speaking about here. Number one, what sex is, or what I would prefer to speak about sexual love, what it is, and then what lust is, because they're not the same. Even though so often they get collapsed into the same idea, they are not. Number one, sex as an act or sexual love, as I prefer to call it, it's not what the pagans in Jesus's day and age spoke about as it being. They would say it's simply an appetite, much like eating or drinking. So those in the Greco-Roman world, that's what they thought it was. They said, you have to eat and you have to drink to live. It's biological. It's just natural and nothing more. So don't personalize a biological function. Like eating and drinking, you have to have sex in order to live biologically. So treat it as that. Treat it impersonally. Treat it indiscriminately. Treat it casually because it doesn't impinge upon your soul. In fact, they would say your soul and your body are so completely separate and distinct to the point where they're divorced from one another that one doesn't impact the other. And so too for the spiritual realm and the physical realm as a whole. What happens in one doesn't impact the other. And really it's just the spiritual realm that matters. It's just your soul that matters. The real you is just the spiritual you. The physical world and even your body, it's temporary and it's dirty. And it's of such little significance that you should do just whatever you need to in order to get through this physical life and physical world. There's this pagan view. And basically you've got to satiate your appetite. So just go ahead, whatever it is. It's just sex. It's just your body. That other person, it's just their body. It's not the real, true them. You want to talk about a worldview and a way of viewing sexual love and, and sexuality that it's primed for all sorts of abuse. There you have it. But it's not just the ancient world. Many pagans then, yes, but also many seculars today hold that very same view, knowingly or unknowingly. It's why dating apps like Tinder are actually possible now, because in so many ways, this is our view. An article from a few years ago on Vanity Fair describes the Tinder hookup world in such blithe terms. The title is Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. So you can imagine it's not a very positive article on Tinder. The author goes into this Manhattan bar in the financial district and interviews these three guys, Dan, Alex, and Marty. They're budding investment investors, investment bankers. They were hired and recruited right out of their Ivy League colleges. And this is what she writes. With these dating apps, Alex says, you're always sort of prowling. You could talk to one or two, maybe three girls at a bar and pick up the best one, or you could swipe a couple of hundred people a day. The sample size is so much larger. It's setting up two or three Tinder dates a week, and chances are sleeping with all of them. So you could rack up a hundred girls you've slept with in a year. 
He says that he himself has slept with five different women he met on Tinder, Tinderellas, he calls them, in the last eight days. We don't know what the girls are like, Marty says, and they don't know us, says Alex. And yet, a lack of intimate knowledge of his potential sex partners never presents him with an obstacle to physical intimacy, Alex says. It's a pagan view. Tim Keller calls it such, and he says that this view does not respect the power of sex, that it is a unitive act, that it joins the whole person together, not just bodily, but in and through our bodies with our very souls, and a a union that lasts far long after the sexual act ends. But there's another view, different, that doesn't simply ignore the power of sex, but also its goodness. Tim Keller calls this the prudish view, and it's this view that's very common to be found in the church. Historically, this is the view that has taken root. And some of you may have known it. If you've grown up in the church, maybe it's done some damage against you because what it, basically what it says is that sexual love is dirty and it's defiling. It is unspiritual. It's necessary for procreation, but that's it. That in fact is the only redeeming aspect of it. So squelch your desires, squelch, repress your desires because they aren't good. And nothing could be further from the truth biblically. All you have to do is just take a very basic reading, the very beginning of the Bible of Genesis 1, where there in the very first chapter, we find God creating us, mankind, male and female in his image, two genders, male and female. And so in creating the genders, he creates sexual love, sexual desire and sexual love both. And at the very end of Genesis 1, there's this benedictory refrain that has been threaded throughout chapter 1 that it is good. And behold, it was good time and time again to at the very end, after he creates his male and female, the two genders, and therefore sexual love, he says, behold, is very good. So this prudish view is patently non-Christian because God invented sex. He gave it to us and he delights in it for us. In fact, in Genesis 2, what's the very first thing that Adam does after he sees Eve? Do you know? Do you remember? He breaks out into poetry. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He breaks into poetry and thus begins all the bad romance battles that the world has ever known. All of the bad poetry, but that doesn't mean that the content isn't true. And what do they say? What does Lionel Richie and Diana Ross sing about? What do they sing about? There's only you in my life. The only thing that's right. Your every breath I take, every step I make, two hearts beat as one. Our lives have just begun forever. Do you know the song? You know what it is? Some of you are Lionel Richie fans. You know the song? Endless love. Now, do we sing about appetites that way? Does it sound like an app? Do we sing about food that way? Of course not. And what they sing about, it doesn't sound dirty or base or defiling either. It sounds divine, in fact. And that is the point. Why do people break out into poetry when it comes to sexual love and sexual desire? Because it's a sign, a true and real participatory sign that's connected to so much more than just it. Pope John Paul, he wrote a theology of the body. And then he says that sexual love is the least inadequate signs in a world full of signs, the least inadequate sign to reveal to us that God is real and what he's like and what it's like to be in a relationship with him and our deep longing and need to know him in a world full of signs, all sorts of signs like the sunrise, the beauty of the sunrise that captures your imagination and causes you to pause. 
or the first time holding your newborn child and being overwhelmed with love and devotion to that child, or the awe of standing before oceans or mountains. Our world is full of signs that reveal to us something about God, about who he is and our need and our longing for him, but all analogies and all signs fall short in some way. They don't fully encapture who God is, but Pope John Paul says that sexual love is the least inadequate of all the signs. That there is no sign, there's no experience in this life that matches it or its revelatory nature. In fact, the entire Old Testament book of the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon is about just that. It is erotic Hebrew love poetry. And little Israel and Hebrew boys, they weren't allowed to read it until they were bar mitzvah because they knew what it was about. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, the bride says in the book begins. Now, just a little sweet kiss on the cheek with the kisses of his mouth. And then the groom responds, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. How much better is your love than wine? Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your two breasts are like two fawns, the twins of a gazelle. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. That's the Bible. The Bible, it's not Lionel and Diana. It is the Bible. And it's telling us that this is a real taste. It gives a very real taste of something so much more. It's just a taste, but a taste nonetheless of who God is, of what he's like, and how he loves it's got an unimaginable beauty and strength and power and mystery. It's a unitive act that brings two people into a total, complete, whole person union in which their souls through their bodies become one. And so Richie and Diana Ross, they, they were right. So listen to our poets, regardless of how bad the poetry is, listen to their, what they're saying. Two hearts beat as one. The Bible would say souls living now as one. As Christians, we do not, we cannot deny either the power nor the goodness of sexual love. And that is Jesus's point. He's not condemning sexual desire in any way. He's seeking to protect it and to honor it and distinguish it from lust. So the other definition, lust, what is lust? It's not simply noticing someone's physical beauty in their form or in their appearance. In fact, if you look at verse 28, we could translate what is said there. Anyone who stares at a woman, who stares. For you grammar nerds, it's a present tense participle that has an ongoing sense. So looking and looking and looking and looking. Because friends, all looks have a purpose. All looks have a purpose. You can look once and notice and acknowledge the God-given beauty of a person. Very same way that we look upon a bride as the back doors of the church swing open and there she is standing in all her beauty. Everyone stands up and turns and looks at her and they acknowledge and recognize her there standing in all of her physical glory. That's not lust. And Jesus isn't condemning that. What he's talking about is ongoing looks that aim to possess and to use in order to satisfy your own desires and it attempts to tear their soul apart from their body and not even recognize that they have a soul because it's dehumanizing. In the end, that's what lust does. It's this dehumanizing gaze that seeks to tear apart their body from their soul and treat them as only a body, as a thing, as an object, as a toy to be played with casually, with no regard for the power of sex, nor its goodness, nor the unitive act that it actually is. And so be honest. Be honest about what it is. Because in lust, we don't want a person, not in their totality, 
not their body and their soul, with all that that brings, their history, their future, their friends, their family, their strengths, their weaknesses, their needs, their gifts. We don't want them and all of that. We just want an experience, not a person. And that's it. And the person involved is just a necessary commodity. In fact, the pagan view of sex, the prudish view of sex and lust all do the same thing. And what do they do? They tear apart what God has joined together. They tear apart the body from the soul. In the end, they're the same view. The prudish view says, let's just have a platonic relationship because the body is bad. And the pagan view says, all I want is your body. I don't care for your soul. Lust tears them apart. What God has joined together, the body and the soul of a man and a woman in marriage, not for an eternity, but for the entirety of this life. Those are the definitions. But now, second point, what are the connections? What are the connections between lust and lying? And some of you are probably thinking, my goodness, wasn't lust just enough? Should we just pray and be done here? Apparently not for Jesus, at least this week. But I once heard a pastor tell a story of a man that he was ministering to and talking to about becoming a Christian. And the man was sincerely interested. But there was one thing that was holding him back from believing in Christ and following after him. And that one thing was his mistress. He told his pastor that he would bring his mistress home to his home when his wife would go away on travel. But in order to to do that, he beforehand had to turn down all of the pictures of his wife, as if in turning her pictures over so he didn't have to look at his wife there. It somehow removed his wife's presence. And obviously there's a straightforward connection there between lust and lying, that people often do lie about that which lust produces. But I think there's more, even more in that illustration. In fact, it helps us understand what Jesus is saying here in the second paragraph about oaths in verses 33 through 36, because in verse 34, he says, do not take an oath at all. And that has led some Christians throughout history to believe that, that Christians cannot be involved in the military whatsoever because there's always an oath involved or any form of government service or even testifying court because of what Jesus is saying here. But I don't think that that's what he means because there are oaths and vows all throughout the scripture, especially throughout the Old Testament. Jesus himself took an oath when he was at trial. The apostle Paul bound himself to an oath. So it's not oaths themselves that Jesus is condemning here, but how they were being used in his day. Because what was happening in his day in ancient Palestine is that if people really wanted to persuade someone that they were telling the truth, you swore you took an oath by the holiest thing possible. And the closer the thing was to the very most holy thing, namely the name of God, which they didn't even speak, the closer that thing that they swore by to, the more they were saying, I'm really telling the truth here. So if you swore by heaven, it was a bigger deal than earth. But if you swore by the temple, that was a bigger deal because the temple was God's dwelling place on earth. And you see what was happening. There's a hierarchy of holy things that people swore by because they thought if, the, if they swore by that, then people would really believe that they were saying it. Somehow, if what they swore by, it brought God into greater proximity to them. And what Jesus is saying is, no, 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 no. You, you can't ever turn God's picture over. Regardless of what you swear by, you don't bring and, and, and establish his presence just by what you swear by. He's always present. And there's nothing in this world, in heaven or on earth, that don't have some sort of connection to him. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. They had to do this then because there was an an underlying assumption that everybody's lying. That was the assumption. It was this dishonesty that was this undercurrent in their culture. And Jesus saying, even if that's the way that the world is, even if, if lying is normative and you have to make these silly O's in order to be, to be believed, you don't do that. The assumption should be different with you, that your word should be enough. 
and your proven character and what you've said and, and done to prove your character, that should be enough. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't need oaths. Not if you're honest. Not if you have integrity. And anyways, that's what Jesus is talking about. He, this word integrity is not used. But have you ever thought about the word integrity? Do you know the root word that it comes from? It's this word integer. Do you know what an integer is? Not really a math guy, but I at least know what an integer is. It's a whole number. It's not a fraction. And so therefore to lack integrity is to lack wholeness. That's what happens when you lie. It fractures you off in your life from others. You split yourself. You say this to this person, but then you say that to this person. And then the other person that you're in a relationship with, they actually know the truth. And so you act this way with this group and this way with the other group, and you're just fracturing yourself apart. And these supposed alternative truths, they govern different parts of your life, and you're split and you're torn in a dozen different ways. And it will exhaust you. It will utterly wear you out, but it will also lose you. In other words, you will be lost yourself in all the fracturing. There's a line from Robert Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons. Do y'all know this play? It's a fairly famous play, but it's about Sir Thomas More's refusal to grant and to recognize King Henry VIII's divorce. Uh, More was the chancellor of England at the time, and King Henry eventually had him executed for not recognizing his divorce. And while he's waiting in prison, his daughter Meg comes to him and begs him to recant. And this is what Sir Thomas More says. He says, when a man takes an oath, Meg, he's holding his own self in his hands like water. And if he opens his fingers, he needn't hope to find himself again. In lying, you lose yourself. You lose who you are. You become so fractured. A much more modern illustration is the TV series streaming on HBO now called Your Honor. Y'all know this show? Your Honor starring Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston's the one who starred in Breaking Bad. And he plays this honorable judge in New Orleans. Uh, one of the few people, as New Orleans is portrayed, at least in the show, as being very corrupt. He's one of the few people with any integrity. And he has this until his son accidentally runs over another teenager while driving and kills him and then leaves the scene of the accident, making it a crime. And so then the one, the judge, who's supposed to know the difference between truth and, and lies and has some sort of honor and integrity, he begins to lie and to cover up for his son. And he leads his son to lie. And he calls, calls in all these favors from all these other unscrupulous people in order to help him through it. And then he loses himself. You can tell he becomes less and less himself to the point where he doesn't even recognize himself. His son doesn't recognize himself. They both begin to ask, who am I? What have I become? Because they're so fractured and disintegrated. They've lost all sense of who they are. And that's the connection between lust and lying. They both fracture us. Lust splits our bodies away from our souls and lies disintegrate us as well, even to the point where we don't know who we are. Ever said that about someone? Who, who are they? Who have they become? I don't even know this person anymore. People said that about you? That's what they do, both of them. But it doesn't have to be you. It doesn't have to be any of us. Because thankfully, it's not the only connection here between these two. Here's the good news of the gospel as it applies to both lust and lying. Yes, they tear us apart, but Jesus came as God in human form in order to be torn apart himself in our place so that we might once again be made whole. Because that's what happened on the cross. Jesus died, yes, a physical death. His body was torn away from his soul. That's what happens in physical death. But he also suffered a spiritual death because his soul was torn away from God. 
That's why I said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have I been torn apart from you and why? For us, because of us, because that's the inevitable outcome of lust and lying and any and all sin. It disintegrates, it splits and fractures us until there's nothing left. And that's what happened with Jesus. In those three hours on the cross, Jesus experienced the acute intensity of billions of betrayals. Billions of betrayals. If you've been betrayed, Jesus experienced that. He experienced the very weight of the betrayal you experienced. He knows it. He bore it for you, not only to forgive you, being split and fractured in our place, but then to rise from the dead whole and new, remade, reborn, ready to share his very life with us again, that we in him and through him, we might be made whole, remade whole. And if you are already a Christian, that is what God is doing in you already. He is repairing all the fractures of your life. And the central way that he is doing that is by empowering you by his Holy Spirit, whom he gives to you, to anyone who believe in and follow after him, to do exactly what he commands here, which is about radical change. Pluck out your eye. Cut off your hand. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Throw it away. Literally, let's hope not. The eye is a metaphor for thinking. Seeing and thinking are almost synonymous, and we see through our eyes, so it's a metaphor for thinking. And Jesus is saying, you need to radically change how you think about sex and about truth and what passes for sex and truth in our culture, because the way in which our culture presents it will tear you apart, and you know. You know it because of all the silly things that we say to try to justify it. Oh, it's just sex. No, it's not. Or we both really want to, and we're both consenting adults, and it feels so good that it can't be wrong. Or there's nothing wrong with looking. Or I'm not hurting anyone in looking. Or it's better to keep it a secret because I don't want other people to find out because it'll hurt them. Or people knowing this will be too shameful, too embarrassing, so I've got to continue to lie. I need this. I've got to do this, even if I have to lie. In the end, it justifies it. The means justifies, is, is justified in the end. It's for the greater good, so I'm just going to go ahead and do this. They're all silly, childish cliches that we have for protecting damaging ways of thinking about sex and truth. And we know this. And Jesus simply says, stop. Stop. Pluck out your eye. Think differently, radically differently about sex and about truth. We have the highest view of both. Christians have the highest view of sexual love and truth. So pluck out your eye and think differently. Even cut off your right hand, verse 30. Literally, again, let's hope not, but the hand is a metaphor for acting, just as the eye is for thinking. So he's saying you can't just think differently about sex and truth. You have to act differently. And in fact, here's a secret. You will never begin to think differently until you first begin to act differently. So often radical change like this, it operates from the outside in. That's how change comes. And you can't be changed. You can be different. God has given you his spirit. But even more so, in addition to that, if that wasn't enough, He has also given you his people. And you don't have to be alone in seeking this radical change that Jesus speaks about. In fact, you can't be alone and experience the change because change like this only happens in community. Which is why we have two different groups here at All Saints that seek to address exactly what Jesus is speaking about here. We have a men's sexual integrity group dedicated to helping men think and act differently about sex. And we have an infertility recovery, I'm sorry, an infidelity recovery group 
that, that seeks to help couples regain and restore trust and live a new life together in the truth. So you can become whole. In fact, in Christ, you will become whole. Through God's grace, do you understand that he's already restored your reputation? Whatever you might fear about people knowing, he's already restored your reputation. Jesus's reputation, his self-denial, his life of obedience and honor and love and integrity has already been given to you. He's already shared it with you. And God looks through the lens of Jesus when he looks upon you. Your reputation has already been restored with God. And what he's doing now is seeking to conform your actual life to the reputation that you already possess. He's seeking to conform your heart to the way in which he already sees you. And so you will become whole. So pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, seek that change that's already begun in you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do seek the change that we need. And we know that only you can provide it. And so Father... Pour out your spirit. Give us the grace, the courage, the hope to seek the change that we know that is ours in Christ. We thank you for him and we pray all these things in his name. Amen.